it's good to be reminded of that uh, whether we are putting money on an offering plate or whether i'm coming up here to preach or the worship team is getting ready to lead us in an act of worship or you are getting ready to sing or go door to door to collect food we we'll lose sight of the fact very quickly that really we're doing this for jesus and we're doing this to him and it is an offering of worship so quickly we get man centered human centered we look inward we look at the church we look at ourselves we look at the actions we look at what has to be done and so it's a good thing for us to be reminded that what we are doing right now is to bring an offering to jesus and now as we come to that point in the worship service where you're listening please remember listening is an act of worship because whoever you listen to you are at paying attention to them and i'm not really thinking about me to the extent that what i say here to you today is an accurate reflection of the scriptures and you can be a judge of that and you ought to judge that to that extent you're not listening to me you're listening to god and so active listening is an act of worship the reformers clearly understood the preaching of the word as an act of corporate worship so this is no time for you to sit back and let your mind wander all over the place active listening is also an offering so you offer your ears to god i'll offer my tongue and my mind afresh to god you offer your minds to god as well as an act of worship everything has to do with jesus that's what this is all about bringing an attention and offering to jesus father thank you so much for these simple reminders <laughs> no one else on earth is worthy of the praise that we bring to you nobody else is worth giving offerings to as we serve one another we do so in the name of jesus because each human being has been made in your image so i i thank you jesus i thank you that through songs and through words you you just remind us allah thank you for allowing us to cry out to you to to words set to music more love more power more of you in my life. and i will seek your face with all of my heart lord if, if we need your presence more than anything else every day in our lives and in those places where we spend most of our time which is in our homes and our places of work where we spend so much more time than we do in church when we say I, i seek your face i need your presence it's in those places we need it for in our neighborhoods when we want to become the fragrance of christ so i ask you this morning father as we give our ears to you will you anoint and dig out our ears that we can hear what the lord has to say to us and will you anoint and touch my lips afresh that i may speak not not the dead letter of the law that kills but the spirit that gives life and once again we would take specifically every thought captive we we ask you jesus that in our worship as we have exalted you that every demonic influence and interference that seeks to um, you know distract us at this time father or or plague us with anxieties and concerns and worries whatever his devices are to take us off your word i pray that this place will already have been purged of those influences and we would take every thought captive and make it obedient to jesus this morning in your holy name we pray amen <clears throat> i subscribe to a research site that is run by christianity today and so periodically visit that as part of my research for my sermon preparation and uh, this past week uh, i came across this article it was entitled adam and eve in the 21st century and christianity today uh, did a 2002 a gender survey that was conducted by the international research department and it shows that most christianity today subscribers are unsure 
what the Bible really means in what it says about the roles of men and women. Of the 750 respondents, 88% agreed, quote, that there's a lot of confusion about male and female roles in the Christian world today. Only 19% say that the Bible's teachings on this matter are very clear and plainly understood. While 39% say that the teachings are clear in principle with much room for personal choice and practice. It's no wonder, therefore, that the bottom line, 78% of respondents think that, quote, Christian leaders need to speak out on proper roles for men and women, while only 9% say they don't need any such guidance. I have no idea what the percentages would be here, but we don't take our clues for preaching from surveys. If there was 3% that said you should speak on the subject, I'd still be speaking. You know why? Because that's where we landed in our study of the book of Colossians. One of the wonderful privileges of preaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't get to choose your topics. And so if you have any problems with this topic this morning, then better take your issues with God, not with me. <laughs> seriously though, seriously. Uh, last week, Pastor Stevens reminded us uh, of the new suit of clothes that God wants us to put on. I can't walk like he does on the pulpit, but he said, let, let the Jesus clothes shine out. Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, and me- with meekness, and with patience. Well, from those general issues, Paul is now going to focus upon what that means in three specific relationships inside the first century Roman home or the Greco-Roman society home, and he will assume for this text that he's speaking to Christians that constitute a home. And so this is what he says here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now Paul, in giving these instructions does so in pairs. He speaks to those who are relatively powerless in that society, wives, children and slaves, and he speaks to those that had all the power on their side, husbands, fathers specifically, and masters. And in order to reinforce that, I'm going to put these things in two columns, one on the left hand side, one on the right hand side, so you see that these injunctions are given by Paul in pairs. He doesn't isolate the powerless and speak to them first and then the powerful and speaks to them. He gives both the powerless and the powerful in each relationship simultaneous instructions. And nothing like jumping into the deep end of the pool. So let's start with the first sentence. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now you've got to understand what that word means in its proper context. All of the, most of the problems have come about without understanding what it really means. It was used quite extensively outside the New Testament. And its primary use was in a military context. It comes from two words. One which means to arrange in order. And the other one which means under. To arrange something in order under. That's sort of the idea. And the picture is sort of a a, a military commanding officer. Who issues an order. And his 
soldiers, whoever is underneath him, arrange themselves in order according to it. I remember some very simple exercises we used to go through as part of our cadet corps training in undergraduate school. And when the guy said line up, or I've even forgotten what the command was, we all immediately took our cues from one another. And in no time at all, we were in a perfect row of 3 by 18 or whatever it was. That's the basic idea behind the word to submit. To, to get yourself in order under someone who is a commander. Now, the commanding officer and the soldiers were absolutely equal in terms of value and worth and identity. But in order to accomplish a particular function which in this case was the military purpose of either taking a hill or or whatever they were doing, you recognize that order. So the essential idea of how this word was used was a recognition of order among equals. Now when the situation changed, that order would change. I remember my my brother-in-law Ravi telling me when he first went to Russia, he had an unusual opportunity to speak to a huge collection of of, uh, Russian generals and whatnot. But the actual uh, meeting was arranged by a young campus crusade for Christ worker. And he said it was quite amazing. He said as, they, as we walked into the lecture hall, here was this young fellow telling all these generals where to sit. And they all sat. You know why? Because inside that lecture hall, the purpose had changed. The purpose was now a lecture and the guy, the crusade guy was in charge. And precisely because these generals knew how to give orders, they knew how to take orders as well. Because you see, now the function was different. And in that situation, so it's a matter of accepting an order among equals for the accomplishment of a particular purpose. Now, of course, if you, when they went out of that lecture hall, if that crusade guy had tried to give them orders, you would know what would happen. Because now the purpose had changed again. That's the fundamental thing that we have to keep in mind when Paul, uh, the scriptures ask wives to submit to their husband. It is to submit to someone who is, with whom they are totally equal in essence before God. But accept a divinely instituted order for the purpose of accomplishing a certain function, which in this case is well-ordered homes, which are the nucleus of well-ordered societies that bring honor to God. The second thing we are told about this word is, is the particular voice. It's in the passive voice. I'm not, I don't know Greek. And I certainly don't understand all the mysteries of active and passive and middle voices, but as I, as I did the research on it and talked to a couple of people in this congregation who know Greek well, they tell me there's a very important difference, that when, it's, when a verb is in the middle voice, it carries the idea of voluntariness to it. In other words, the, the submission that the wives are being called to, this recognition of a functional order among equals, is not something that the husbands force them to, it is something that they are to voluntarily submit to. Understanding what this means, understanding that this is essential for the accomplishing of this purpose of well-ordered homes, they voluntarily and gladly submit to the leadership. That's the idea behind it. It is something that is not forced upon them, it is something that they are asked to accept voluntarily. The third thing he says is do it because it is fitting in the Lord. The word fitting means because it is something that is appropriate. Not just because it's appropriate because it's expected in society as it was in first century Greco-Roman society. He said because this is quite fitting. What is quite fitting? This idea of submission to someone who is equal to you for a functional purpose. You see this word was applied to this verse when, in, you know, when Jesus was 12 years old. And we read in the book of Luke that he went back home and he was obedient to his parents. That the word that's used is exactly this word, submit. Now, Jesus was not submitting to an equal. He was submitting to people whom he created. Remember in Colossians we heard that all things hold together in Jesus. 
Joseph and Mary's very bodies were being held together by Jesus. And yet he submitted to them. Why? Because for the purpose of accomplishing God's goal of redemption, he submitted himself voluntarily to an order that God had instituted that children were to be submissive to their, to their parents. That's what he means when he says it is fitting in the Lord. Wives, if you call yourself Christians, if you believe that Jesus Christ lives within you, then an expression of these new clothes within you in your relationship with your husband is this kind of voluntary submission to their leadership. Not because they are superior to you, but because it's God's recognized functional order among equals. That, that's the essence of that command. Now, immediately... Now, by the way, implicit in this, of course, is the fact that if, any, if ever that that leadership or that authority of the husband leads you in a direction that is flatly contradicted by scripture, then it is no longer fitting in the Lord. That's not Paul's major point here, but that is implicit. Now, Paul immediately moves to the other half of the equation, to the husbands, who had this authority in the society that they lived in. They were the ones who had absolute authority and control in their homes. And Paul is saying to them, listen guys, don't fall back upon that authority. Because this command to your wives to submit voluntarily goes hand in hand with another commandment. And that commandment is for you to love your wives. Now, Stevens reminded us last week that there were two primary words that were used in the, in the Greek New Testament for love. One was eros, which where the object of the love was the source of the love. And agape, where the object of the love is not the source of the love, the source comes from God. Because the very nature of agape love is that which completes and that which builds up. The interesting thing is, while that word agape was quite used in extra-biblical or non-biblical first century Greek, they also in Greco-Roman society had these kinds of house rules, which specified roles for the wives and roles for the husbands. But never in any of that literature anywhere were the husbands asked to love their wives with this kind of completing love. That is totally unique in the New Testament. That is why all those people who label Paul a woman hater, I don't know what they're talking about. It's absolute nonsense. Through instructions like this, Paul elevates women to a, to a level that was unknown in first century Greco-Roman society. By saying to the husbands, any authority that you have has as its primary purpose this kind of completing love that moves out so that they grow and, and function and blossom underneath that kind of love. That's what you need to use your authority for. And that was something that was basically unknown in that first century. And then Paul mentions it negatively. He said, do not be harsh with them. Now, a lot of interpretations are quite in translation. If you read five or six different translations, sometimes you'll find them saying different things. And I found that with this word translated harsh. Really, the closest meaning of the original is the word bitter. It comes from a root word being bitter. And the text basically says, husbands, do not, it doesn't say do not embitter your wives. It says don't be embittered against your wives. Now, what does that mean in this context of loving them with this completing love, in what sense could there be a possibility that husbands could become embittered against their wives? There's one that readily suggests itself to my mind. I only have to look at my own heart to understand these things. I'm not a wife, but I am a husband, so I can understand that side a lot better. I think it can work in this way. There may be others. It can work in this way. A husband who's called to love his wife with this kind of completing love, what does he do when he doesn't get respect and submission to his leadership? He could then choose to focus on that. And the more he focuses on what he's not getting, the more bitter he can become. And that bitterness is going to get in the way of then loving with a completing love. So those two things go together. And so Paul says, husbands, this is what your authority means. Forget about what the society says your authority is. Your job 
is to love your wife with a completing love and be careful that you don't get bitter against her. And you know, in putting these commands side by side, Paul, I think, is underlining and emphasizing the fact that our focus needs to be on our responsibility. You know what our natural tendencies are? The natural tendency of husbands is to focus on all the ways in which their wives are disrespectful, do not accept their leadership, resist them, etc. And every husband knows that that's true. (laughs) The natural tendency of wives is to focus on all the ways in which their husbands are not loving, compassionate, kind, and merciful. Guess what? That's natural. We can do that in our sleep. It doesn't, we don't need to become Christians to be able to live like that. What Paul is calling us to do is something unnatural. He's calling us to this kind of recognition on the one hand of a voluntary... And see how well they would work together. If you have a husband whose primary focus, and nobody's perfect, whose primary focus is this kind of, I'm not going to let my spirit get bitter towards my wife in the areas in which she's not doing that. Instead, I want to continue to complete her. And combine that with a wife who gladly, voluntarily understands this godly order among equals. You can see what kind of a home that that would establish. Now Paul moves from there back to the side of the powerless and he talks to children. Now he says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now I want to speak to children for a minute. Because first of all, the first thing that this verse recognizes, it recognizes children as responsible members of the local church at Colossae. Everybody up to grade 8 is not here anyway, so all the ones who are above grade 8, listen to me for a few moments. You are responsible members of this church, whether you're formal members or not. In other words, you also have a responsibility, if you call yourself a Christian teenager, to live out the Christ that lives within you. You are responsible, not just your parents. And to you, he says, shining in these new clothes of Christ living with you involves obeying. It's a much stronger word than submitting and it's not put in that voluntary middle voice. It's an imperative command to obey your parents in all things. Now, lest that seems very harsh to you, let me remind you again of a couple of things. First of all, it doesn't mean you're any less important when it comes to essence and equality of person. It's back again to this issue of recognizing a functioning submission authority relationship among people who are essential in worth for the purpose of accomplishing God's purposes, which is well-ordered homes here again. That's the first thing you need to remember. Secondly, even this call to obey radically in all things is for your own good. Some of you may may remember hearing about or reading about Helen Keller. uh, The lady who fairly early in birth got sick and as a result of that was deaf, dumb and blind. Uh, If you can get your hands on a movie called The Miracle Worker, see it. It's well worth seeing. Because it's the story of her teacher, Anne Sullivan. Everyone knows Helen Keller. Very few people know that her teacher was Anne Sullivan. Now, like, think about it for a minute. How do you teach someone who's deaf, dumb, and blind? You can't give them verbal commands because they can't hear you. You can't act out anything because they can't see you. You can't get feedback from them because they can't speak. How do you teach someone, any, all of you are teachers, how do you teach someone who's deaf, dumb, and blind? Well, the, the story is all about how Anne Sullivan did that teaching. And for me, one line in the whole movie was worth seeing the whole movie. It's, how did she get, some, somewhere you have to break into this cycle to get the process. And you know what that was? I won't get into all of the details. But it had to do with teaching that child to obey. To do something that they didn't want to do. I think if I remember right, it had to do with just sleeping on a bed as opposed to wherever she would uh, crawl under door and under various pieces of furniture and things like that. But the key sentence was this. 
And Sullivan says this, Obedience is the key to knowledge and love entering the soul. Obedience in Helen Keller's life was the key to knowledge and love entering the soul. So children, I have a question to ask you. Do you want to grow up? Do you want to grow up as a person who is knowledgeable? Do you want to grow up as someone who is mentally, intellectually sharp? Do you want to grow up as someone who is loving, who has emotional intelligence as well? Now come on, that's a no-brainer, right? Which one of you don't want to become like that? Anybody here who doesn't want to grow up and be known as a person of knowledge and love? Well, if you do, obedience to your parents is a critically important component of that. Okay? Again he says, for this pleases the Lord. Actually, literally it's the same translation as it's fitting in the Lord. It's not pleasing to the Lord. He says, for this is pleasing in the Lord. In other words, again, this is what is fitting. If you are a Christian child, then to live like this in obedience to your father and mother is appropriate. And of course, again it implies that should your parents ever ask you to do something that is flatly contradicted by the scriptures, then you are excused from this commandment. But there is no other exception. What they, what they ask you to do, if it happens to be something that doesn't suit your style or your preference, you're not excused from this commandment. But if it's a matter of scripture, yes. Otherwise, obey because you will grow up to be someone. At least it is a key to growth and knowledge and love. Now, of course, immediately he comes to the other side. And he speaks to the fathers again, although the mothers are implied, because the fathers had absolute authority. In Roman society, a father could even pass edicts that would lead to the death of his child without being called into question. He had complete and total authority over his children. And so the Apostle Paul said, hey, you've got a job too. (laughs) Fathers, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, when I read this, reading the many translations, again, this word was also different. It's not the same word as the word for husbands to not become bitter. In fact, the root word here is uh, stirring up something. You know, when you stir up something and agitate it. So, basically, the idea is as fathers, don't stir up and agitate and provoke your children. What would constitute that kind of behavior? You find a clue because he says, or they will become discouraged. And the word there means to give up, disheartened, to lose heart, to lose energy. In other words, they give up on this task of continuing to grow up as young men and women capable of knowledge and love and maturity. So that's what fathers are being asked not to do. Don't stir up and provoke and irritate your children in such a way that they will throw up their hands and say, what's the use? That's what it means to dishearten a child. That happens, for example, if you might put upon them unrealistic expectations and then criticize them for not meeting them. It can happen if you have a favorite child and you compare the others to their behavior. It would happen if you are continually nagging them. Those are all various ways in which you provoke and stir them. Instead, by implication, of course, Paul says, use your authority to encourage them rather than discourage them. Do your teaching and spurring and the using of your authority in such a way that rather than lose heart, they will gain heart and say, yes, I want to keep growing. Will you help me in that process? And we saw a beautiful example of that in, in Lisa and Shannon working together. That's by serving all together in a ministry. You see, the goal of a father's authority and a mother's authority is to train your children for that day when they will no longer be under your authority. When they will be governed Internally, self-government is the highest form of government. And parental government has one primary purpose, to equip them. 
to survive in the real world out there because you have built that kind of strong heart inside of them. Alright, now Paul moves on to the third group of people who are powerless. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Couple of things. First of all, you said, well, just a minute, Sundar, I thought you said this was all about homes, rule. We're talking about slaves and masters. Well, actually, you know, if you came from, if you come, grew up in the kind of world that I did in India, you realize that in many, many homes, you have servants, and servants live in those homes. In first century Roman society, slaves lived within the home. And so, the master-slave relationship was very much part of the relational matrix between husbands and wives and parents and children. Children often saw how the masters treated the slaves. And so, even in talking to slaves and masters, Paul was still talking about things that went on inside a home. Now, of course, today, especially in this society, we don't have servants. Certainly don't have the ones that are living in our home. So, I guess by extension, but only by extension, we can probably apply this to the work world. I mean, we betray that connection when we use words like, boy, I was slaving all week long, you know. Or you might talk, to your, talk about your boss as a real slave driver. So, there is by general extension the application, but you need to remember that Paul primarily still had the home situation in mind when he was talking about slaves and masters. Uh, another, another comment I need to make to get out of the way. Um, just like people label Paul a woman hater because of his comments on wives' submissions because of misunderstanding, they also have trouble with these kind of statements because they say, how come Paul didn't abolish slavery? And Well, that wasn't the point. Paul is writing in Colossians chapter 3, he's been talking about Jesus, the supremacy of Christ in creation, the supremacy of Christ in, in redemption. He's now talking about this new set of clothes. He's talking to Christians who are full of the living Christ within them, how to live out that Christ. That's his whole goal. To launch into a little digression on, or a big digression on, on anti-slavery would be to totally miss the point. Paul is looking at the first century real world and the reality in there was husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters and he's looking at this issue and he's teaching Christian slaves and Christian masters in that situation that you're in how to live because abolition was going to come until 1800 years later. So, with those out of the way, what is Paul saying? He's totally radicalizing the first century slave-master relationship by pointing to them both that they have another master. And he happens to be the same person. It's sort of like saying to the employer-employee today, to the boss and the worker today, guess what, you both, you both have the same boss. And he's saying to the masters, you're a slave, by the way. <laughs> That's how he's radicalized them. So he specifically says to the slaves, he says, first of all, he says, serve your earthly masters. By the word earthly, he's underlining the fact that their present plight, however difficult, is temporary. Secondly, he says, serve not only when their eye is upon you, but serve in sincerity of the heart with your whole heart. In other words, he says, don't serve just to make an impression upon your master. Serve by working flat out as best as you can. Why? Because you are going to receive an inheritance. No matter what you receive at the end of the day from your earthly master, you have an inheritance that you will receive from your heavenly master. And notice, he's talking, talking those things about ordinary work, not about ministers. Roman slaves were not able to inherit anything in the first century. Paul's saying, that doesn't work with Christ. <laughs> you have an inheritance that's coming for you. And you know, it works in today's world too. Uh, Howard Hendricks, a uh, well-known pastor and teacher, talks about a time when he was sitting on an airport for a flight and the plane got delayed, you know. 
and, he, and he stayed a long time on the tarmac. And he said the passengers were getting more and more irritated. And I can understand that. I get awfully irritated when planes get delayed that long, especially when you're sitting there doing, moving nowhere, you know. And he said, but uh, I saw this one uh, attendant. Uh, he said, I just couldn't help noticing how graciously she was speaking to the people. No matter how irritated they got, how gracious her speech was and her action was. So, he said, when the plane finally took off, he said, I, I called this woman over and said, hey, uh, I, I want to know your name and I want to know who your boss is because I want to write them a letter commending them on your service. Said, who do you work for? And she said, sir, I don't work for this airline company. She said, I work for Jesus Christ. And before I came here this morning, my husband and I prayed together that my work will be a demonstration of Christ to the people that I serve. That's not a cheesy little statement. She lived it out so people could notice it. That's the kind of stuff that Paul is talking about here. Don't serve to impress a human boss, he said. Remember you are serving the Lord Christ in your work, in your everyday work. The point is simply this. He was telling the slaves, you cannot find any meaning in your slavery, but you can bring meaning into it. This is God's prescription for bringing meaning into the work when you cannot find meaning in the work. Some of you find yourself in those kind of dead-end jobs, as you call them. This is what will transform it. This is what it means to show the new set of clothes in that context. Now, very quickly, he moves to the slave, masters. And they were, of course, as I said, absolute lords. They could, like a child, they could kill a slave, beat a slave, and many of them did. No, no account. Slaves, as uh, Stevens reminded us last week, were just human tools to be used and discarded. And Paul says, the masters, provide your slaves with what is right, dealing with the issue of uh, money and wages. And then he says, do what is fair. Do not take advantage of them as you can by virtue of your position. Why? Because just like the slaves, you know that you also have a master in heaven. He radicalizes the slave-master relationship by pointing out the fact that they both have the same master. Okay, that's the text. We understand the text. We understand the words. We understand now what Paul is saying about how they need to work. What this whole issue of uh, functional subordination among equals, how what that really is like. All with a view to Christ. I want to take the latter part of my message to talk about one crucial dimension that is absolutely important for us to get a handle on. And we're going to bring our lives, our home lives, our work lives into harmony with what we've heard this morning. Here's the question. In that society, precisely because of the powerfulness of the right-hand side, wives already had to submit. They had no choice. Children had to obey. The father's authority was absolutely unquestionable. And slaves were slaves. They had no choice. So question, why is Paul telling wives who already were submitted to submit? Why is he telling children who had to obey to obey? Because they were already doing it. The external actions were already in place. I can only think of one thing. The only thing I can think of is that what Paul was after was far more than external behavior. He was after an internal attitude and thought. Wives, it is only too possible for you to do all the submissive actions on the outside while rebelliousness and anger is just seething on the inside. Children, you can go through all the motions of obeying your parents, but you're muttering under your breath and when you talk to your friends about your parents, it's a totally different ballgame. And workers, slaves... However you want to apply it, you can be going through all the right motions, but deep down within you are continuously agitated in your spirit. Paul says that's not enough. Now, on the powerful side of the equation, as somebody pointed out last night, even the actions would be impressive. <laughs> but Paul says that's not enough. Husbands, it's not enough just to act that way. 
If you're busy acting in such a way as, as to love your wife, but you're continually becoming embittered on the inside, that's why Paul spoke about that. He said that's not good enough either. Husbands, or I mean fathers, you're trying your best. But deep down within your children are picking up an agitation and a critical spirit on the inside. It's not going to work. So Paul's after something much more. He's after an internal spirit. That's why I think the essence of this whole submission, whoever it applies to, is a quiet and a gentle spirit on the inside. And there's only one person. There's only one person whose internal attitude while submitting was exactly in harmony with his external actions and that was Jesus. Remember the verse that introduces this whole text. We began with chapter 3 verse 18. Uh, Stephen's ended with chapter 3 verse 17. Remember what the 17th verse says? Whatever you do, in deed or in work, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. So let me just re-paraphrase that to the text that we've looked at today. So wives, if you're going to submit to your husbands because you understand a functional order among equals... Do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father all the way through. Husbands, if you're going to use your authority not to be harsh and embittered, but to love your wives and to complete them, do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father all the way through. Children, if you're going to obey your parents, do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father all the way through, because you are growing in knowledge and in love. Fathers and mothers, if you're going to use your authority not to discourage, but to encourage and to build up and to strengthen your children, do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Slaves, workers, if you're going to work not as I please, but you're going to work flat out doing the best job you can, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father for everything. And owners, masters, if you're going to treat those people that work for you, even though they may not sometimes respect you, if... If you want to treat them with fairness and rightness, do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father for everything. That's the mindset of Jesus. That's why it was so appropriate that Stephen chose to remind us at the very beginning of the service with Jesus' mindset in Philippians chapter 2. What does it say there? So let this attitude be in you, which was in Jesus. And then when it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that's not just an arbitrary general exhortation. It comes after showing us the mind of Christ. In other words, he says, work out the mind of Christ in you. What was the mind of Christ? Though he was equal with God, he became man. Though he was a man, he became a servant. Though he was a servant, he became obedient. Though he was obedient, he became obedient unto death of the cross. And it says, therefore, God exalted him and gave him a name above every other name. What sustained the submission of Jesus to his father? Even though he was equal with the father, he submitted to the father in order to accomplish that external, the redemptive function and the purpose of God. And here's what sustained him. It tells us he was sustained by the joy that was before him. The book of Hebrews, which is the other book that corresponds to Colossians when it comes to exalting Christ in the New Testament. It says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the pain of the cross. He humbled himself into something painful. Why? He says, therefore the Father gave him a name that's above every other name. Jesus' mindset was one that was sustained. It was a submission to a divine order among equals that was sustained by faith in the joy of future exaltation. That's the way it has to work in our lives if we're going to come into harmony with what we've learned today. What is it? What is it that gets in the way of husbands and wives, parents and children, and workers and bosses functioning this way? I know, I think I know what it is. I think it's fear. You know how the fear works? It works something like this. Boy, if I do this, if I develop a quiet and a submissive spirit towards my husband, he's going to take advantage of me. 
Meanwhile, the husband's afraid of the same thing. If I don't flex my muscles once in a while, if I just focus on this kind of uh, completing love, and not letting bitterness and resentment even have a view, wow, she's going to take advantage of me. When am I going to get the respect that I'm due? Children are going to say, well, if I start obeying my parents and everything like this and never stand up for myself, I'm always going to be odd man out when it comes to my friends and what are they going to think about me? Fathers and mothers might say, why, if we don't get hard, if we don't come down a little bit harder on our kids, we're going to lose them when they grow up. It's fear all the way through. Fear that somehow we're not going to get what we think we deserve. That's why we need the mind of Christ. That's why we also need to be sustained by faith. That if we dare to follow Jesus in our marriages, in our homes, in our work environments, that He will exalt us. The proper kind of exaltation that we deserve will come. And so I put it in the form of a principle. Exaltation in relationships. Whether it is husband-wife relationship, parent-child relationship, or worker-boss relationship. Exaltation in relationships comes not by grasping for exaltation but by submitting to God's functional order among essential equals. Let me read that again. Exaltation in relationships comes not by grasping for exaltation, but submitting to God's functional order among essential equals. And by the way, look at the alternative. Where has that got you? Where does grasping get us anyway? (laughs) Do you get what you want when you grasp? Do you get what you want when you demand that you are respected? So why, why waste our time and our energies on something that we know doesn't work? When God calls us by faith to have the mind of Jesus Christ. One man put it this way. He said, Paul's uh, teachings, what it introduces into our homes and our work is not new principles, but a new presence. It's to to introduce and to live out the person of Jesus Christ in our homes and in the workplace. We want to take a few moments now. Uh, We deliberately structured the service in this way so that we don't rush out after this. Because this is not our natural mindset. This is the mindset of Jesus. But the glorious message of Colossians is that this is the mind that dwells within us. We have the mind of Christ. As Wayne pointed out, we have power, we have love. But when Lisa and her daughter decided to march out, they saw the power at work. As they began to pray for neighbors. And so, I want us to take some time to think about it. Many of us here are married. We are either wives or husbands. We are, many of you are parents. Many of you are children still in the home under the authority of the parents. Almost all of us are workers. Some of us are bosses. So, these principles have wide application. And I don't know where God is speaking to you today. But, we want to take some time. We want to create some space in which you can listen to God. I've attempted to reflect what I think he's saying, but ultimately this is the key point, when the Spirit of God, I always pray before every sermon, God, remove from the people's mind those things that were only born in my own flesh. But if anything from me was from you, then let it sink down deep. This is the time to let things sink deep. So as the worship team comes now and leads us, we want to sing a couple of songs, and you prepare your heart, then we'll create some moments of silence and space. For you to listen. Which of these relationships is God speaking to you about? What does it mean for you to bring yourself into harmony with God's functioning? Or where in the whole issue of submission to God's authority, in all aspects of life, starting within the home, in the church, 
Because there's very clear functional authority in the church. The elders of this church and the people of this church are equal in essence. But there's a functional order that God has established. And in the workplace. So, as we sing, just let the Spirit of Christ continue His settling and probing work in your heart. Becoming like Jesus in this mindset is not jumping from where we are to where He is. That's impossible. It is step by step that he leads us. And last night I asked people at this point in the service to take what you've learned so far, what you're hearing the Holy Spirit say, even one step further. And, and choose, what, what do you need to do next? In whichever relationship he has spoken to you about, what is the next thing, concrete thing you need to do to let the new clothes of Christ shine? I had one mother come to me afterwards and she said, well, I've already done it. I said, what? She said, God spoke to me about my tendency to be very, to can sometimes be to nag my children. She said, so I just sat and wrote three encouragement cards, one to each of my kids to build them up. Until we take it to that point, your lives will not change. And so I want to pause again now for a minute. Before we sing this last song, I want to pause for a minute and ask you to identify a concrete step. Whether it is to your wife, to your husband to your child, to your parents, to any other authority relationship in the church, to work, to your employee, to employer, wherever this principle, whatever God has spoken. Let's pause for a few moments and I want you to think, Lord, what specific step do I need to do that you will lead me? That's all he's going to hold us responsible for. Forget about the 5,000 steps needed to become like Jesus. What's the next thing you need to do and to whom and what? And then the last song we will sing with that specific step in your mind, okay? So think about it for 30 seconds. As I was thinking about the benediction and praying yesterday, you know, throughout my study in Colossians, I've been regularly reminded of how much it parallels the other book in the Bible that exalts Jesus, and that's Hebrews, you know. And And I thought again about the sufficiency of Christ. And of course, Hebrews talks about many ways in which Jesus is superior. I just want to bless you with that knowledge of this Christ. First of all, may Jesus, who is greater than the prophets, uh, make this word attractive to you. That you will receive this word not as a burden, but as a joy. That the precepts of the Lord are right and bring joy to your heart. And that his commandments are radiant. May you know them as commandments that enlighten your eyes. And because he is greater than the angels... May you know Jesus as your mediator, the only one who mediates the law and the love and the glory of God to you. Because he's greater than Moses, may he lead you out of the kind of bondage that we are sometimes into selfishness in our relationships. And may he lead us into, into freedom of the kind that we've never known. And because he's greater than Joshua, may he lead you into a place of rest so that submission does become a matter of quietness and rest as well. And finally, because he's greater than Aaron, And because you and I will fail sometime in all of these relationships, may you know him as a merciful and faithful high priest who gives you grace and help just in the nick of time. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.